Hey listeners, are you enjoying our podcasts and coaching advice? Do you feel like some guidance and accountability could help you stay motivated and focused during these uncertain pandemic times? We love connecting with our listeners and collaborating to make training work for your goals, your life, your personality. As a thank you for listening to our podcast, we want to offer any new clients $20 off the first month of coaching, which is normally $150. Email us at Julie and Lisa at runfartherandfaster.com to set up a time to connect over the phone to learn more. And be sure to mention this special offer as one of our loyal listeners. Hey, Julie. Hey, Lisa. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. How's your week been? It's been great. It's been, uh, it's, you know, enjoying. It's crazy to think that we are now uh, toward the end of August and the whole summer has gone by. At the beginning of the summer, I think we all kind of thought, wow, the summer is going to be so long with no camps or activities or, um, you know, just the COVID summer going to be so long. And here we are and we're only... Um, we're, we're less than two weeks away from the start of our school year, which is crazy to me. So what is your school doing this year? I I think last time we talked to you were virtual. What are you doing now? Yep. So we are, our school is all virtual and it's been an interesting process here in Montgomery County, Maryland. Uh, we had, it was a couple weeks ago, um, the, the County health official and, um, came out and said private schools should not open. So public schools were already not, we're going to start the year virtual through the first semester already that had been determined already. Uh, the private schools were sort of on their own and under the assumption that they could come up with a good plan. The governor of our state then issued a, uh, I think it was an executive order, but basically overturning that, that um, prohibition on private schools opening for our county. And then the county health official came back and reissued the order. The private it's schools a match. It was like, I felt like <laughs> I was getting whiplash. We were, we were at the beach when it happened. And every time I would check the news or I'd get a text from somebody, I was like, I couldn't even keep track of like, okay, where are we now? <laughs> and our private school had already announced, um, I'm sorry, they had not, they, they were planning to announce their plans on August 6th. And the county health official came out just a couple days before, I think it was maybe August 4th. And put out the prohibition against opening. And so then our private school came out and said, look, the county health official says it's not safe. We're gonna, we've planned for all virtual, we've planned for hybrid and we've planned for all in person and we're gonna start with the all virtual and we can transition to one of the other two when it's appropriate. And what I really love about our private school is that um, they, they put out very early in the summer or maybe even at the end of last school year that this is their, their guiding principles for reopening in the fall. Um, would be based on a set of values. And one of those values is what is best for the community and not just the school community, which includes the teachers and students and parents and families, but our broader community. And that as soon as it came to light that that at least our county health official did not think that it was safe for schools to reopen at this point. Uh, they said, well, in line with our value of protecting the community, we are gonna start all virtual. So it, it's a tough situation. I, I can respect all the different viewpoints there are families for which not going back to school or not having their children in school is really challenging parents who have to work outside of the home kids who really need to be in school and need that support in school and need to be in person for their for their academic development for their social emotional well-being so i can very much respect that and i and i 
don't take it for granted and feel fortunate that I'm in a position where I've got kids who learn well virtually and are pretty independent and old enough to be able to do a lot of this on their own. So for me personally, I was in agreement that virtual was the best, the best decision for us at this point in time. So um, I'm okay with it, but I definitely see how it can be a hardship for people. And it was a back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, but we are starting all virtual. Long answer, short answer to, the, to your question is that we are starting all, all virtual and the school will is trying to get metrics and guidance from the county and the state as to when it would be safe to come into a, a hybrid or phased in approach to reopening. And at that point that they will reassess and they are prepared in every level and our you know our hybrid hybrid system is up and ready to go as soon as that's an option a safe option um but the virtual the virtual learning looks really great and confident it's going to be a good start to the school year i mean i have two kids starting high school so it's a little um, bittersweet and weird to be starting high school and, and they are they stay in the same physical school building it's a private school so they're not making a big transition but to start high school virtually it will be an interesting something very interesting to see how that goes yeah it'll definitely give them something to talk about um, for the rest of their lives how they started high school virtually i feel fortunate that neither of my kids are making a school transition this year, but um, my kids are in public school and they are starting virtually. And um, I know last spring they, they rolled with the punches and they really um, adjusted well to virtual learning, but both of them have separately expressed a lot of disappointment to me about starting virtually. They really were hopeful that they would be physically in their buildings and certainly I understand um, the reasons, but like you pointed out, there are so many emotional um, tolls on kids and parents from not being able to go back to school in a physical building. And to that end, um, there are schools around the country that are starting, and I'm very eager to see how that goes. I hope that it goes well, and I'm hopeful that even though Montgomery County at this point has committed to virtual learning until um, first semester ends, which is the end of January, there's a part of me that's hopeful that maybe, just maybe, if things look a lot better, um, that will be adjusted. Yeah, I, I will say, I will add um, that our private school has made accommodations to have athletics on campus in small groups, socially distanced outside. So they're making accommodations to do, which is different than our public schools. Our public schools have first said no sports and then went to kind of a virtual model of sports for the kids that they can participate in. Um, ours is doing outdoor sports and I feel really fortunate and two of my three kids have signed up to do that. So they will be able to hopefully, as long as all goes well and as planned, go onto the campus and participate. And it, it won't be games or competitions or, or contact or anything like that. It's skills development. And um, so that, that to me is, you know, I, uh, I feel like that is at least some, a saving grace for us that that's I think our school is probably trying to do the best that they can under the parameters and with the with safety in mind so I hope that you know the public schools maybe like you said if things are looking better we'll we'll make some accommodations to to, to do something like that yeah absolutely so moving on from um, that uplifting topic, let's talk about running. Um, so there's been a couple of things in the news. And first of all, last week we mentioned at the very end of our episode, our, our part one of our coaching episode on preparing for your best virtual marathon, we mentioned the buff, the famous now buff 
a study that revealed um, that buffs are not only not as effective as regular masks, but could actually be worse than wearing no mask at all. And it didn't really reveal happy. that. That was the headline. The headline, yes. yes. So we are happy to say that since that study was published with that headline, we've now learned further information that, number one, the headline was misleading, as you just pointed out. And number two, the study was really not comprehensive at all. It wasn't. A, it that, was a study on the efficacy of the testing for the, 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 the masks. It wasn't the mask itself. It was the method of testing. So, and it was one particular buff, uh, a fleece buff of some sort, one particular buff of a particular material on one, one person. So, yeah, so I think, you know, it's a good lesson. We, we had this earlier in the pandemic when there was that study that came out with the big headlines of, you know, when you're running outside, you can be transmitting virus because of the airflow. And so it had diagrams that showed if you're standing behind somebody in their draft, you know, you, you're most at danger. And um, if the wind picks up the wind speed and, and it, it really, you know, freaked everyone out about running even near somebody else, even six or 10 or 20 feet away from somebody. And then there was clarification that came out after that. It was just it, that, that, that was not the, the implication that it was a very, you know, you have to look at it in the right light and um, really take a careful look at these studies, see if they're peer reviewed, if they're, you know, really take a look at them and see what, what, what is the study looking at and what are the conclusions of the study? And does that then lead to those those um, implications for you know practical real life uh, implications. So it was. It's, I think I'm learning now to take a few minutes or take a few days after a study comes out to like, take a step back and wait to see a little bit more detailed analysis of that actual study. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we have a couple of runners we coach. Uh, shout out to one of them, Wendy Young, who um, they're scientists and they. Um, they look at things and from a different lens um, than how a lay person like I would look at things. So when I read something, I look at the study, but I'm, I'm not looking at the study as critically because I wouldn't know what parameters to examine exactly. But I appreciate their, um, when, when they see something, generally I notice um, they'll share it with a caveat. And I really appreciate that. Um, information. We happen to live near NIH. We happen to live in an area where there are a lot of scientists and we happen to have the privilege of coaching a number of scientists or people who work in the field of science and we always appreciate their input. So to that end, we will continue to give out our buffs. Yes, but I will say, so in, in, our, in our panic, when that study came out, both of us in our panic, thought, what other masks can we use? What can we use? What can we order? So we ordered the, um, which I had heard, you know, you know, a lot of different masks out there that we've heard are, are, are good or better for exercising, but I had heard good things about the Zensa. Zensa is compression gear. Zensa had come out with a mask much earlier in the, in the year or in, like, in the pandemic, and they sold out very quickly, but they were back in stock. So we ordered a couple and they came within a few days. I have to say, I love my Zensa mask. So if anyone's looking for an option, it, it does not have ear loops. It, one loop goes around your neck, which sounds uncomfortable, but it's not. And one goes around the back of your head and you can still, I, I found it easy to still pull up and down. I put the big loop, you know, around my head. And then if I, you know, I take it down, I just pull it back down around my neck and pull it back up. Um, if I'm passing people, so it's pretty easy to use. It's very breathable. Um, but seems like pretty thick, substantial material. Um, and you know, I, 
dries very quickly, doesn't get real sweaty and gross. Um, so I, I really like it. So if somebody's looking for an option to a buff or just wants to add a different mask into their repertoire of growing, growing, uh, whatever growing grouping of masks that I have in my house. It's like our mask collection is growing and growing, but if you're looking for that and you're looking for something that's comfortable for working out. Um, that that's one that I would recommend. And actually along those lines, um, uh, I actually started teaching outdoor cycle classes this week. And, uh, yeah, that was really uh, kind of on my wish list. I, I was not, I think we've talked about this before in the podcast. I was just really not ready to go back to teaching indoor classes and, and there are indoor classes now and in Maryland, which has been very good about, um, safety measures and mandating safety measures. The governor actually mandated anyone working out in a gym needs to wear a mask. So if you're in a gym and you're in a, or in a group exercise cluster, you do need to wear a mask and, uh, not outside when we are socially distanced, uh, masks are optional, but there are still riders in my class that, prefer to wear masks. And certainly when you're indoors working out, need to wear a mask. So if you're looking for a good mask for working out, not just, just running, I think this sense, uh, I wore it when I taught, um, I, I really liked it too. So not just for running. Yeah, I liked it too. Um, we ordered two and, um, I tried mine this week and I thought it was really effective. I have admittedly not wear, worn it while working out or running, but, um, I wore it out and about and I thought it was really comfortable. Yeah. So Great suggestion, and thanks for ordering one of those for each of no us. Problem. I think I it. Order, order another one. Stuck so up. Shout out to Zensa. It's spelled Z-E-N-S-A-H. So go on the website, and the masks are there, and they offer a lot of pretty colors and such. So um, I wanted to also talk about a podcast that I listened to, a podcast episode that I listened to this week that I shared with you, Lisa, and I, I just shared it with you this morning, so understandably you haven't had a chance to listen, but, um, it was, it's worth a listen. It's, uh, the running road podcast. And the episode is with coaches, Ben Rosario and, um, Frank Shorter and Frank Shorter is a legend. He's now 72. And not only does he talk about his running days with, um, Prefontaine, but he talks about his longevity in running and what he has done um, to maintain his, um, positive attitude toward running, even in times like this, but also, uh, running at a high level at his age. And of course we just had on our runner, Eric Melby, who shared so many wonderful nuggets of wisdom and he is the same age as Frank Shorter. But I thought that Frank had some interesting, um, sort of approaches to running. And one of them was he really encourages every runner to have, another form of motion. And I really love this. And, and you and I talk about this a lot, Lisa, how it's, it's great to cross train, but he wasn't talking about cross training in terms of injury prevention. He was talking about cross training and using it more as, Hey, when you're tired of running or when you just sometimes feel like you're lying in bed and you're trying to convince yourself why you don't need to go for that run, maybe it's time to go to your plan B and do something else for a little while and come back to running so that you can love it again. And knowing that that happens to Frank Shorter, the legend, is, is really encouraging. So that was something that I really took away from this episode. The other thing, Lisa, that I wanted to share with you is that Frank mentioned the value of loops in training and in racing. So he said, he mentioned that 
if you find a loop and you predictably run the, and the loop is predictable and you kind of know how long it takes you to run the loop, that studies have shown that mentally the run feels easier and goes faster when you're running a loop. So I just wanted to share that with you because we had talked about this specifically last week in our episode in terms of designing a course for yourself for the virtual Boston, there is some method to the madness of running a loop course. So um, that was another negative wisdom from that episode. Finally, what another piece I took away from that episode that I just wanted to share here um, is something that we emphasize so much. And that is that you have to really enjoy the process. And while races are not happening, that doesn't necessarily need to control our enjoyment of our running. So take control and figure out your own goals and figure out your own way to to approach your running during this time. And if you take control and you figure out a goal that makes you happy and you motivated, whatever that may be, then when this is over, it will not only allow you to still put more miles and efforts into your training bank, but you will also look back on this fondly and it will be a blip on the radar in terms of your overall, you know, running life. So for those that are feeling a little bit sick of this, because, you know, we are approaching six months and just feeling like if I hear about another race being canceled, it's so boring to hear a race. Yes. Then just say, screw it. I'm going to figure out my own goal. I'm going to figure out something just for me. That's going to motivate me. And if you can't figure out what that is, because nothing is exciting you with respect to running, then think about what Frank Shorter said. Find another activity for a little bit that, that makes you happy and then go back to the running or do a lot less of the running and do more of the activity that makes you happy. And um, so if you have a chance, check out that podcast episode. I really enjoyed it. And I think, I think um, anyone listening to this will enjoy it too. Yeah, I love those are, are great tips. And I think we see them in action and actually working for a lot of our runners. I was just talking to one of our runners this week who had won really badly to do a fall marathon, especially to celebrate her birthday, which is actually uh, coming up this week. She wanted, that was her plan and everything she had looked into is now canceled. And she really did a great shift and said, you know what, now I think she looked at how many miles she had run this year. And she said, I think I'm going to set a goal of running this many miles this year, which is a reasonable amount given what she's run so far. And it means bringing up her mileage a little bit more than we have it right now, um, but safely and carefully. And it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good big goal to have a certain number of miles. Um, Another runner that I was talking to this week Um, said, you know, she wanted some big goal, even though the races are off the calendar. And I said, um, you know, she's somebody who typically trains for half marathons. And she had suggested, well, maybe what if I do like a 15 mile route on my own, like 15 would be really great. And she's already trained up to like, you know, pretty close to that. And I suggested her, I said, I think you could probably, by the timeline that she's looking at, I think you could probably do a 20 mile run. And she was so, she said, wow, that sounds amazing. And you know, that, that's like, you just made my day. So now that's her goal is to just get out and do a 20 mile run. It's, it doesn't matter. It's not a race, but 20 in her head sounds like something she wouldn't have even thought of, but I think is safe for her to build up to by, um, this will be by November. So, you know, we have plenty of time. So, um, and, and then on, on the other point of, of finding a different activity, we have a, a couple of runners, but one in particular that I'm thinking of who, you know, just was getting just dragged down by the running and she took a break and took a break even from our coaching, which is fine. 
And um, she just mentioned to me the other day that she just started running again and it feels so good to be back and that the break she took and she said it was 49 days. So it's not forever, but you know, she was counting, but she, you know, kept track of, of it was 49 days of not running. And she, uh, you know, now feels like she can come back to running with a fresh, you know, fresh perspective on it. So I think we see that with a lot of our runners now, we're, we're seeing all of the different things happen. And, and one thing that we're actually, you, you know, you mentioned there are no races and there are actually some races going on very few and far between. And, um, it's very hard to chase those races down. Uh, but we actually have a runner flying out to Iowa today for Saturday's main to main marathon, which is in Osage. I don't even know if I'm saying that correctly, but Iowa. And it is, um, it is going on with COVID precautions and waves of five runners every minute starting at 6.30 a.m. And it is a small race, but they do have a marathon, half marathon, 5K and 10K. And they have different start times for each that are you know, 6.30 a.m. for the marathon, seven for the half marathon. And they spread everybody out. And it's an out and back course. And um, they've taken a lot of precautions. And she is headed out. So it's going to be uh, one of our only runners that is actually, I mean, the race is on. Today's Thursday. It's, it's still on there. She's on a plane. Oh, so exciting. Going out. So <laughs> we actually have, I sent her race prep last week and I said, this is like, I feel rusty sending race prep. Like, do you know how to remember? Oh my God. I was so excited when that came through. I'm like, what is this? Yeah. Race, race prep, prep for a real race. This for is a amazing. real race. And then we had a nice long one hour phone call uh, the other night just talking through everything. And it was so nice to really like strategize about a race again. And, and we can do the same thing with virtual races, but you know, it's, it's not the same. It's, 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 uh, you know, I think a lot harder, a lot more challenges. So, so it was really neat. And we have another runner who is scheduled to run, um, chasing the unicorn marathon, which is also a very small marathon in Pennsylvania in, uh, the same weekend as the virtual Boston marathon. So she just found out that she got into that. There was a wait list because they're really limiting the number of runners and she didn't think she'd get in, but she just got a notification that she got in off the wait list. So that's still, you know, a few weeks away, but it looks like that one's going to go too. So we do have a few runners that are running actual races, but those, you know, this is very similar to, we were talking about school and the kids wanting to be back in school. But, you know, my kids said to me at some point, well, mom, we go back to school. It's not going to be normal school. We're going to have masks on. We're not going to be able to hang out with our big groups of friends. Like it's going to be stressful to be in that. It's going to be different to be in school. It's not the school that we think of when we think of school. And it's the same thing with these races. This isn't, these aren't the races that we think of when we think of races. These aren't the big, exciting, you know, big corrals to start, the big post-race parties, the big groups of spectators on the course cheering. Um, it, they're, they're going to look very different. And so I think it just takes a a different mindset going into it. And, and that will be interesting to see. And that's a big wild card. And we talked about that a lot in our race prep was that we don't know how to really prep mentally for these races because we don't know exactly what they're going to look like. How spread out is the course going to, is the field going to be? Are you going to see other people on the course? You are, is anybody going to be along the course cheering you on? What, what is it going to look like? What is it going to feel like? Is it going to have the same adrenaline as race day? So I'm really eager to see see how it goes. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and to your point and your kid's point, we've talked about this so much over, you know, since we started podcasting, races aren't about the times as much as they're about the, the memories, the experience, the friends, the community. And 
I so miss our community. I miss um, just being in groups of people and, and meeting up and running with others. And for me, that is why, you know, so much of why I enjoy running. And I'm eager for that to come back. And while I, I certainly would be thrilled to participate in a race, I wholeheartedly agree that until the race is really a, a community event again, it still won't feel, I still won't feel the excitement and, and pleasure that I normally would feel in doing a race because hanging out and seeing people and, and giving hugs and all those things is, for me is an integral part of racing and being part of the running community as a whole. And um, I'm very much looking forward to when that comes back. I know that will come back at some point. And when it does, it will be that much sweeter. It will. It will. But I think it's going to be different for, for a little while. So I, I completely agree. And I think for so many of us, that's why the virtual races, while supporting good causes and do give goals for people who would like to have that goal. It's, it's not for, for those of us who the running community makes so much of the experience and it's been a little bittersweet to mark the passage of time too. Like this weekend would have been the Annapolis 10 miler, which is one of my favorite that both of us have done for probably 20 years. And, you know, we love to hate the love to hate the race because it's usually hot and humid and, you know, it's a hilly mm-hmm. race, but the passage of time of kind of looking at my watch and my calendar and realizing, oh, this would have been this race or this would have been, and actually very interestingly, I didn't mention this to you before, but you know, my running route is through a neighborhood here near us, the Kentlands and the Kentlands has uh, a 5k every every Labor Day weekend, the Saturday of Labor Day weekend. And again, it's a race we've done. I think I did the first one, you know, however many years ago it's, I, I've done it probably every year and I love it and it's so close to my house and it's my running route that I run all the time anyway and the signs are out it's a virtual race this year but on along part of the course there are signs that say Kentland's 5k Saturday of Labor Day weekend 8 o'clock a.m. so I don't know if I don't know why the signs are out maybe people I I don't know maybe I, I don't even know because it doesn't say anything like virtual this year or anything like that they're just the standard signs that are out hmm. For one second I thought is the race actually coming up? I got a little, you know, a little sad thinking like, I don't, it's, it's not, but why are the signs out? I don't interesting. Know. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, are you running that race virtually? No, no. Okay. No. The only okay, virtual cause... race I'm doing is, is Boston and still deciding exactly the logistics of, of that. And we are going to talk next week, do another a second part of our race prep get everybody ready for the week before the week leading up to kind of the earliest time that you can do the Boston virtual. So if anyone has any questions, especially after our last podcast, where we went through a lot of race prep, if you've got follow-up questions, we've already got some follow-up questions that we'll address in the next podcast. So if anyone has any questions as they're starting to wrap their head around the logistics and the final preparations to do, whether you're doing the Boston virtual or another virtual marathon, please shoot them our way to Julie and Lisa at runfartherandfaster.com. And we will make sure to add it to our list of topics to discuss next week. Great. So coming up this week, we have a really uh, terrific guest. During this pandemic, you and I have talked a lot about there's sort of three camps. Um, There's the camp of people who are really – discouraged by what was happening. And I'm talking early on in the pandemic. So there are three camps. There were the people who were just, oh my gosh, this is overwhelming and this is super depressing. And I just 
don't want to do anything physically right now. I just want to lay low and just not think about training because I'm overwhelmed by the stress of this pandemic. Right. And there are then no there, races. There are no races. Yeah. Like, what's the point? Like, I, I don't have my goal anymore. So people who just kind of right. like, taking a step back. No. Yeah, exactly. Then there was the middle camp, which is, um, I want to train. I want to maintain my fitness. I want to train or run for stress relief. And I'm going to scale it back, but I think that running is something that will help me manage through all of this stress. That's the middle camp. And then there was a third camp of this is an opportunity to see how much I can do and challenge myself in different ways. And exercise is the one thing that makes me feel good. And I have more time than ever. So I'm going to do more than I usually do because it's something that I can control and, and continue to get better and better. And so, at the time. And that's what, a lot of what we saw is that people have the time to. Right. And, and, you know, like, so if I've got more time to run, why don't I run more? And we should exactly. say aren't the runners that we coach because we're making sure that what he was doing that. But. Right. And, and no criticism at all from no, our end. Right. Any camp that one chose is, or chooses because it's still ongoing yeah. is great. Right. But with the camp we just mentioned, there is a risk with respect to overdoing it as, as Lisa, you just alluded to, which is, you know, sometimes you can do too much of a good thing. And as coaches, sometimes we struggle with looking at data, not just with our runners, but in general and saying, okay, so is that being passionate and committed or is that overdoing, you know, running or overdoing exercise to a point that it's dangerous or perhaps an addiction? And we're not psychologists. We while we're in a position from our data points to look at things and to have certain um, recommendations, sometimes it's hard for us as coaches to determine when something has gone into a place that it shouldn't, where it's unhealthy. become unhealthy. So, which is hard over, with exer- with it's hard with running and exercise because yeah, we get that this is an outlet for a lot of people. A lot of people, ourselves included, like I'm. I, I'm will be the first to admit that like my running is like my therapy and that's my time to, to really focus on, on stress release and, and, and meditate even it's very meditative for me. So on the one hand we have, we want to encourage that and we understand that people are coping with a lot of the stress through exercise, but right. On the other hand, it can cross. We don't know when it's hard for us to determine when it crosses a line and when does that become unhealthy? Right. And it's different for every individual because someone who's passionate versus someone where it's their profession. I mean, there's different, it's not a physical thing where you can say, well, if you run this much, then clearly you're addicted. It's not that at all. There are a lot of parameters and we've done ourselves a, a lot of research on this just because look, you know, we're coaches. We have a certification. We have, we continue to do continuing education to get better and better. But frankly, what I think makes us continue to get better and better is experience and coaching all different kinds of athletes, using that information as data points, figuring out what works, figuring out what makes people tick and figuring out how we can best support every runner because every runner is different. So we read a lot of articles on this and there was one person who kept being quoted in each article and articles um, in all kinds of different publications to um, journal, medical journals to um, more mainstream publications like Shape Magazine. And it was Dr. Heather Hausablas. So she's a professor at the University of Jacksonville. She was previously at the University of Florida and she was quoted from both. 
and she kept being quoted. So we reached out to Dr. Hausenblas, who we, she told us we could call her Heather, and she is lovely. And she agreed to come on our podcast and talk about her 20 plus years of work in the field of exercise addiction. And it is fascinating. So coming up next, we interview Dr. Hausenblas, and she shares with us and uh, and with and we'll share with all of you of course um what it means to be addicted to exercise and running and and what one can do if you feel like you're someone that has been or could be in that position or if you have a child in that position a friend or you just want to know sort of what signs to look for uh it's a really terrific interview and we know we learned a lot from it and we hope that you do as well. Yeah, so it's, a, it's a definitely an important, important um, topic and something we have talked about a lot. And I, we get the question a lot, or I will hear a lot, well, it's a good addiction, or, you know, does it matter that I'm addicted to exercise? That's okay. And, uh, you know, some people I think view it, but, but Heather really clarifies for us when that crosses the line. And, and I would share a quote that this is just a quote that comes to mind. And I share it kind of tongue in cheek that I used to um, kind of say for one, people would say runners are obsessed. Um, obsessed is just a word that the lazy use to describe the dedicated. So I, I say that half joking that, you know, looking at somebody and saying that they're obsessed with, with running, it, it really is just a perspective. It's a, a perspective issue. Is it, you know, are they, how do we know when somebody is, when it becomes unhealthy and, and if it really becomes a, a to a point where um, it's working against your health rather, and mental health and physical health versus for your mental and physical health, um, then it's something like you said that we can look inside ourselves, we can look at our, our, our friends, um, for us, the runners we coach, and even our kids as they get into sports as well. Absolutely. So before we go, I'm, I just wanted to read her bio that she sent to us, to our listeners. If you'll indulge me, I'll go ahead and read yeah. it because it's so impressive. Um, so Heather Hausenblast, PhD, is an author, a researcher, and a leading health wellness expert. Dr. Hausenblast is the co-author of six books, and she has published over 100 scientific journal articles related to health, sport, and wellness. She has been recognized for her research, and she has been the recipient of several awards, including the Sports Science Award of the International Olympic Committee for her research on social determinants of physical activity. Dr. Hausenblas is an advocate for improving people's health, and she currently serves as the vice chair for the Mayor's Council on Fitness and Well-Being for the City of Jacksonville, and is a member of the Humana Bold Gold Initiative, Movement for Change. She is a mom to three boys, and she enjoys exercising outdoors, spending time with her family and friends, and coaching and watching her sons play sports. Her goal is to hike in every national park in North America. She resides in Jacksonville, Florida with her husband and boys. What a bio. Super impressive and also just um, really knowledgeable and, and knowledgeable, like you were talking about before, that so much of our knowledge doesn't come from our certifications and our, our educational background necessarily, but from experience. And she's had so much experience working with athletes and, and she works more broadly on, on psychology of sports. And she talks about the psychology of exercise versus necessarily sports or athletics uh, psychology, but um, have so, has so much experience. And that's where I think she gets so much of her perspective from and really, really helpful to help us wrap our heads around this. 
Yeah. So without further ado, uh, we will bring on Heather, Dr. Halsenblas. So Lisa, I hope you have a great week. You too. Bye. The last couple weeks of summer. (laughs) Bye. We are really excited to announce that we have our first sponsor. R&J Sports, which is located in Maryland, is the first sponsor of the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Even though R&J Sports is a locally owned running store, they do ship nationwide and have a website from which you can order, rnjsports.com. If you go onto the website and purchase something over $100, just put in the code RFFFEATURES, F-E-E-T-U-R-E-S, and they'll throw in a free pair of feature socks with your purchase. You can also call the store at 301-881-0021 and over the phone, they'll provide some terrific guidance on which shoes are right for your foot. While it's not the same as a in-person fitting, for many of us, we can't do that yet. So this is a great option. In fact, one of our runners in China recently contacted the store and they provided her with some great advice and she was able to get a replacement pair of shoes that's working for her very well. So again, call RNJ Sports at 301-881-0021. Let them know that you're with the Run Farther and Faster podcast. And if you make a purchase of over $100, they'll throw in a free pair of socks or you can go on their website. Thanks so much, RNJ, for sponsoring our podcast. Dr. Heather Hausenblas, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. We're so thrilled that you um, were able to make the time. We know you are so busy. And just by way of background, we found you because we have been interested as coaches in the subject of exercise addiction and what exactly that means for quite some time. And we noticed a pattern that whenever we either um, posted an article on our Facebook page or read an article ourselves about that topic, the same person was quoted. And it was often you. And so we decided to reach out to you. And we we're just really grateful that you were available and so generous with your time because we know that the school year is ramping up. So uh, speaking of school year, why don't you just um, briefly share with our listeners who you are and a little bit about your background? Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I live in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm originally from Canada. I've moved down here with my husband about, uh, well, over 20 years ago, I was working at the University of Florida and I was directing an exercise psychology research lab. And since then have moved now to, we live in Jacksonville. So I'm now at Jacksonville University where I I do research and teach and lecture on health behaviors and exercise psychology. And what prompted your interest in that subject um, when you started um, teaching, researching and then teaching at your first job at University of Florida? So it was really about 25 years ago when I started in doing my PhD, I was actually really interested in in performance psychology or what we call sports psychology and wanting to um, understand and help athletes to to peak performance and how they reduce their anxiety and those types of things. But right around that point, I stopped being an athlete myself and was switching more to to fitness and to exercise and was part of, you know, the step aerobics and that, that whole so really my interest began to um, began to shift and I became fascinated with the, the psychology of, of movement or the psychology of physical activity or exercise. So that's where my research went to. And at this point, it was really a, a young field. It was a, a new field, which made it even more exciting because there wasn't a lot of research done in the area. So it was, it was wide open. But what fascinated me, we were at a point really 
for the first time in the history of mankind where we weren't moving enough, we weren't exercising enough. So I began to try to understand, okay, what's going on? Why aren't people exercising? And I'm fascinated with whatever behavior, the whole continuum. So from not doing it to doing it too much. So that's really what stemmed with the, the exercise, looking at, okay, most people aren't doing it at all. And why is that the case? But then you also have this group of people that seem to be doing it too much. Um, exercising potentially too much. There seems to be some type of negative health effects going going on. And then that stemmed the question, can you actually become addicted to exercise? Like you can become addicted, you know, to, to um, you know, alcohol or, or gambling or other types of things. So that's really what stemmed, you know, my interest and piqued my interest in it. It was really about 25 years ago. So what, what would you define as um, exercise addiction? Like what, what is your definition and after your 25 years of experience of, of exercise addiction? You know, that's a great question. And to be honest, there's really no one set definition. When I began to look into it, it was the definition was scattered. Some individuals will say it's a positive addiction because if exercise is a good thing. So if you're doing more, that's even better. Another group would say it's a negative addiction. There would be all these different types of, you know, kind of definitions going on, you know, around it. And the way that I've looked at it, when we've taken a look holistically at, at all the research that is out there and also interviewing, you know, hundreds of, of, of people that, that you may say may be addicted to exercise or maybe they're exercising too much or, you know, have a high level of, of commitment. There's, there's a, a pattern that occurs where, yes, they're exercising a lot. What do we term a lot? That's really difficult. We don't have a set, you know, a set, you know, is it one hour a day that you're addicted to exercise? Not necessarily. Is it five hours a day of, of running, for example? No, not, not necessarily. What goes on? It's not necessarily the volume or how much you're doing, but it's the, the psychology behind it. So are you almost like a compulsion to exercise? You know, are you, can you not stop? Can you not take a day off? Those tend to be the kind of the telltale signs. So you can have, for example, someone who we classify, let's say, as a committed exerciser. Maybe they're exercising two hours a day, every day of the week, but they're able to take a day off or a couple days off or maybe even a week off, saying, okay, my body's tired or I'm busy. I've got other things going on. They're able to take a step back or if they get injured and their medical doctor says, you need to take some time off to let this heal, they're able to, to do that. Somebody who's addicted to exercise cannot they cannot take that time off. So they will continue to exercise through that injury. Maybe they'll pick up another type of, another type of exercise, but there's that compulsion that they just can't, they just can't stop. So I'll give you, um, you know, an example of someone that we interviewed who um, she finished running a marathon, which is obviously a, a huge accomplishment, an extreme event. She said, I crossed that finish line and I, was compelled to run more. I could not, I could not stop and continued to continue to run. So by me saying that it's not, it's not, I'm not saying that people who do ultra marathons are, are addicted to exercise because they're able to cross the finish line and stop and say, okay, I accomplished my, I accomplished my goal, but it's this compulsion, you know, to, to keep going. And another telltale sign is giving up of what, what we call social, you know, social or work obligations. So somebody who's addicted to exercise will, let's say for whatever reason during the day, they're not able to exercise. They're supposed to go with friends in the evening and they have an exercise book cancel going out with their friends because they're going to get their exercise in because that takes precedent over everything else. The average, the average exercise would be able to take a step back and say, okay, you know what? I'll just, you know, 
I'm going to skip today and I'll, I'll, and I'll exercise tomorrow. Um, another example is we had interviewed um, a gentleman who lost his job because of, because of his exercise. So he began to go later and later into work because he had to get his exercise in. He would leave at lunchtime to, lunchtime to exercise. And finally, you know, his employer said, you know, that, that, that's enough, but he could not, you know, he could not stop. It was that, that compulsion for, for some individuals it can become expensive as well. One individual that um, I had interviewed said that he ended up buying three different gym memberships because he knew that he was exercising too much. He knew that it was an issue, but he didn't want one gym to realize how much he was exercising. So in the morning, he would go to one gym, in the afternoon, another gym, and then in the evening, another one. So it's these types of you know extreme behaviors. And what I try to get across to people um, it's not necessarily the volume, it's how you think about it, you know, and the things that you're giving up or not being able to like stop if you are, if you are injured. You know, what triggers this? How do you see that transition happening from somebody who, um, you know, can take a step back, can take a recovery week to somebody who has that compulsion? Do you see common triggers? How do you see that line get crossed? Yeah, that, that, that's a really good question because it almost seems like there is a line that, that, that is crossed. And it is, it, it's, and just to preface, it's not classified in, you know, the, the, the book of mental disorders as a certified, um, you know, mental disorder as, a, as of yet. In the last edition that came out, um, they acknowledged that there are behavioral addictions, that you can become addicted to a behavior. The only one that, that's acknowledged right now is gambling because there's a significant amount of research but over the last probably 10 to 15 years, there's really been an explosion of research into exercise, into exercise addiction. So typically with any type of, of addiction, because it is psychological, there's something that there's some type of trigger, right? Whether it's potentially stress, potentially um, anxiety, maybe this need to, to have something under, you know, under control. What we have seen, which is supported by research, is that individuals sometimes will, will go from one addiction, you know, one addiction to another as well so it's really coming down okay what is the root cause of it and then that's what really needs to be treated um and it's difficult because you can't and you don't want to say to somebody who's exercise addicted or exercising too much to stop and not do it because we we know that exercise is one of the best things you can do for your health exercise really is medicine so it's a matter of reframing and having these people rethink how they think about exercise and bringing it down to to a level that puts it kind of in, in, a, in a healthier, in a healthier range. So I have two questions based on what you just said. First of all, I would imagine based on you, in Lisa's words, one of the triggers um, is that this pandemic, given that there is a lot of stress and anxiety, and you had just mentioned the importance of um, how exercise is deemed as something you can control. This just seems like under these circumstances, a recipe for um, an explosion of exercise addiction, and have you seen any evidence of that? You know, it's, it's an excellent question, and to be honest, I haven't seen any any evidence from a science standpoint because that will take some, you know, that will take some time. But coming down to, you know, you think about, um, you know, with gyms being closed, or now, you know, they, they've reopened, but when they were closed, you couldn't buy fitness equipment anywhere. It was, you know, it was sold out because people wanted and, and also it needed to it's, it's uh, exercise is one of the best ways to reduce you know your stress you know stress and anxiety and improve your mental your mental health but it's 
when you lose the, a lot of people like the social support and the going to the you know and going to the gym and when you're not able to have it it that's that's difficult and people need to to regroup and rethink how they're going to do things so what do you suggest for someone right now who's dealing with what they think they might you know dealing with some symptoms that could possibly lead to an addiction as they use exercise as a means to for, for lack of a better word console themselves during a very difficult time um, that this pandemic continues to be. We see that exercise is, is therapeutically an excellent way to um, take care of your mental health. But given some of the descriptions that you just provided with respect to symptoms, what do you suggest to someone who may potentially say to themselves while listening to this, you know what, I think I'm heading down that road. Is there something that one can do um, before letting it become an addiction or is it just something that you should just seek help and, and determine it? I know I'm asking sort of a general question for any type of mental health issue, but with exercise, it's, it's tricky because it is something that's so healthy and it's something that obviously as coaches, we encourage. So what are your thoughts about that? You know, that's an excellent question and a difficult one to, you know, to directly answer. I think, uh, an important thing would be to to begin to keep you know a diary of your of your exercise to see when you're exercising during the day how often and if there's potentially any type of triggers that you know something happens and then you're kind of feel compelled to go and and exercise so that you can kind of understand what what are your motivating factors to engage in exercise because the average person if you ask them why they're why they're exercising and they'll often say you know it's for health related reasons right it's for my fitness um it's for you know you know oftentimes you know weight but somebody who's who's um you know has this compulsion to exercise their motivation is a lot different it's like they have to and it becomes you know the most important in a sense thing in their life and it will take precedent over over anything over anything else and when that happens then that is unhealthy and, you know, if someone takes a look at their, their diary and their motivations for their exercise, then maybe it's time to seek some help from a mental, you know, mental health um, provider. Is there anything um, like physiological or chemical related? Like, you know, we talk about the runner's high or this sort of, you know, I, I know sometimes if I don't exercise for a few days, I start feeling like headachey or, you know, I feel like I'm going through withdrawal sometimes, you know, since my body's used to exercising. Is, is there some chemical or physiological aspect to the addiction? Well, and that's a really good question. And you talk about the runner's high, and that's something that's really difficult from a science standpoint to, to actually to, to pinpoint specifically what, what's going on. But I think what's really important is to, to know that if you are a regular exerciser, so you're exercising, let's say, four or five, six days, even seven days a week, if you, if you miss a day or two, you're going to feel it. You're going to notice. You're going to notice it, right? And and yeah, that may be a little bit of a withdrawal. We all we will all experience it, but and, and that's normal. But it's when it is so extreme that someone who is exercise addicted is either going to keep exercising to, so that they don't experience those withdrawal, you know, withdrawal effects, or they're exercising so that they, you know, won't experience them. So that's really the, you know, really the difference that occurs is just this extreme, you know, this extreme behavior that that occurs. Yeah. And, and do you see a difference or maybe in the research or just anecdotally between men and women? Is there, is there a difference? No, that, that's a good question. And there, there has been a lot of research trying to like kind of tease out um, 
tease out the gender, you know, the gender differences, because we're always interested in that. And one of the consistent findings um, that we that we do see is this difference or this kind of this categorization that we have in, in exercise addiction from a primary to a secondary um, exercise addiction. So what we've been talking about, you know, for the for the first little bit of this segment has really been um, what we classify as primary exercise addiction, which tends to occur a little bit more in in men, and that differs from secondary exercise um, or exercise dependence or addiction, which you see more in, in women. Now, it's sec we call it secondary because the compulsive exercise is secondary to an eating disorder, and we know that eating disorders occur more in more in women. So the the secondary Exercise addiction happens when somebody has a diagnosed eating disorder and they're using excessive exercise to try to control or maintain their weight. So that really has a different kind of psychological underpinning than what you would see in the primary, in the primary exercise addiction. So with somebody who has secondary exercise addiction, what first needs to be really taken a look at and treated and try to understand is the eating disorder and then try to understand the, the compulsion, you know, compulsion behind it. You know, I've interviewed um, and studied, you know, women with eating disorders, and one individual stands out that was excessively exercising for the sole purpose of trying to burn calories, where in between classes, she would go to the bathroom, be doing squats and push-ups, like in her, in her stall, she would be constantly fidgeting underneath, you know, underneath her desk, trying to do things so that she would be continually burning, you know, burning calories. So yes, she was exercising excessively and moving excessively, but it was secondary to that eating disorder. You know, it's funny you bring that up. There was a big controversy on social media this week. Um, a very uh, well-known athlete, um, professional athlete, Colleen Quigley, had put out this um, Instagram post, and she has a huge following, and she, her posts are generally wonderful, but this one was controversial because she posted a photo of her abs after a, a track meet, and I mean, they're, she's very, very fit right now, and then wrote something to the effect of how much ice cream will I need to eat now that the season's over for these to go away, and it was a real, I mean, she her intention was, of course, she did not intend at all for the message to be conveyed that one um, you know, cannot be fit and um, without skipping the ice cream. But of course, that was the message conveyed that a very fit athlete like her um, is not able to eat, <laughs> eat ice cream until the season's over. And there were other messages, but the major message there was that, of course, if you eat junk food, you're going to have to exercise to make up for it. And that's certainly not the message we want to convey to anyone, particularly young athletes who follow her. So to that end, it seems to me that while that was controversial, that is the messaging a lot with respect to exercise and eating is um, to more extreme your client that you mentioned, but hey, I just ate a huge meal. I need to work out tomorrow to burn it off. So with your research, have you found that there's certain messaging that can be a trigger with respect to that type of secondary exercise addiction? And do you think over the course of your 25 years in doing this, has that messaging improved or has it gotten worse? So it's a two question. It, it, it is a great question. And you're, you're getting at the whole fitspirations or the fitspos that we, that we see out there. And, and it's gotten worse in the sense that now we have social media. So you see these images 
all over the place. They're typically some, a hyper fit individual wearing, you know, not a lot of clothes, you know, the six pack abs with some type of, you know, saying like no pain, no gain, or, you know, something that's really not grounded in science. And what we do know is that when individuals who, um, who really internalize those types of images, when they look at them and say, that's, that's what I need, that's, that's what I want to look at. That that's what healthy is. Those are the individuals that that are that are more at risk for for the addictions and also for, for more anxiety and more depression. And looking at those images puts them puts them in um, in a much worse mood. And unfortunately, the image those images portray that that's what you need to, to look like to to be fit and to be and to be so called healthy. And that, that and that's not the case. I mean, that's a combination of unbelievable genetics, uh, an extreme diet, and also, you know, the exercise that goes with it, which is not feasible for 99% of the percent of the population. So it's unrealistic. And that's not necessarily not necessarily healthy and not necessarily what what fitness is. But unfortunately, that's what we see. And people need to realize, you know, you look at the cover of like, you know, women's health or men's health or, or fitness or L or Vogue or any of these magazines. Um, and you see these images of these incredibly beautiful people with, you know, extremely fit. And, and you have to realize that there's been um, an incredible photographer, there has been Photoshop, um, incredible Photoshop that has gone on, you know, behind that. And it's not realistic. I have, you know, I have been on, um, on site when I've seen, you know, um, celebrity photo shoots go on and, and I see what happens. And then I actually see the photo that is selected and I see the Photoshop that, that goes into, into these photos is unbelievable. So unfortunately, especially for younger individuals that are so vulnerable and they see these types of images, they think, oh my gosh, you know, the six pack abs are extremely thin. This is what, this is what I need to be, to be healthy. And that's, and that's not the case. That's so unrealistic. It's about end and, and social media um, and maybe more towards the primary um, the primary addiction. How do you think um, like Strava, for example, Strava, you know, social media, it's a tracking, you can track your friends and your own progress and your mileage and there are challenges, you know, 200 miles a month, whatever, this long run. How do you think that contributes? I mean, does that just facilitate it for somebody who might be already inclined? Is that push people over into that. I mean, because we can see it now, even within the pandemic, when we don't have races and people are looking for some sort of challenge, they're doing these runs across the country or these Strava challenges or, you know, whatever, which are great and motivating, but they also have a flip side of causing the sole focus on getting in those miles and not stopping. And, you know, how do you, how do you see that contributing? Right, it, and it, and it's an excellent question. I think for, for the most part, they're they're a really good thing. It, it, uh, you know, the whole social support and the accountability for most people is really is really good. But it's for that extreme, you know, those those people that have those, those types of triggers where it can turn into that obsession or almost like, okay, I ran today for for thirty minutes. Tomorrow I need to do forty, and then each day it kind of builds on it. And unfortunately, what's happened during the the, the pandemic is a lot of of people's, you know, typical day-to-day -day habits have, have dramatically changed, um, and they're looking for something else. A lot of people have a little bit extra extra time as well, and it's important to try to keep things within, you know, within a healthy range. Even, you know, even your exercise as well. And I so say to people, you know, more is not necessarily better. Um, and we need to realize that, you know, if you're meeting the the physical activity guidelines. Um, 
that that's great. That is incredible for your health. But if you continue to increase after after that, kind of there really isn't these huge increases in benefit in benefits. So really, if you're engaging in you know what the science says, like over 300 minutes per week of you know moderate or vigorous physical activity. The added health benefits really aren't aren't that aren't that significant. It's not that it's negative for your health, but it's not that it, you're, it's a huge health health increase. So people need to be you know need to be aware of that. Yeah, we love that more more is not better, and then that we we as coaches I think have a challenge a lot um, convincing our runners, and especially yeah. because a lot of runners are type A and very high achieving, and they set a goal and we have a schedule and they want to follow that. How how as you know, and you mentioned before too the 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 person you had interviewed who had gotten three different gym memberships. How do coaches, how do, you know, gym trainers in gyms, how do we spot this and how do we help our runners or our, you know, clients, whoever that may be, how do we help them convince them that that more is not better and, and help them kind of shift that, that paradigm? That that's a great question. And it, and it's difficult, right? Because you, you want to encourage people to exercise, you know, to run, to, to go to the gym. And it's usually, you know, the, the coaches or the trainers or the individuals that work at the gyms are the first individuals to notice, okay, this person seems to be, you know, engaging in a lot. They're on the Stairmaster for an hour or two or three, maybe coming in multiple times a day. And it's very difficult to know how to approach, you know, these individuals to say, like, you know, is everything okay? You know, we think you might be exercising too much because it's extremely sensitive and you don't want to, um, you know, throw, throw the person off. So it's really difficult to, to know how to, how to approach. Um, I've seen some gyms will take individuals' memberships away, will not allow them, you know, into, into gyms because they're exercise, they're just exercising too much and they're not giving it off the right image that they feel for the gym. And is that the right thing to do? Not necessarily, because you need really with something like this, it's it's not a one one shot approach. It's a, it's a whole kind of team approach to somebody's you know to somebody's health. The first thing is probably just to bring awareness to it to say, hey, you're, you're you know working out a lot. What are your goals? What are you trying to you know what are you trying to accomplish? And then begin to get a dialogue, you know, a dialogue going, and then look to the experts who who have expertise, you know, the mental health counselors, for example, who maybe can come in to to intervene and to help. Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion is, I mean, we know for us when we spot something that seems a little off, that's the first thing that we, we do as coaches is we recognize the limits of our expertise and we, we are never hesitant to refer someone to a therapist because, I mean, it, there's no shame. Everyone is dealing with tough, tough things, especially these days. And, and that is something that anyone can benefit from regardless of what you're going through, even if you're doing great. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for the, for the most part, exercise is, uh, and, and the research is so solid on this, that it's a great way for individuals to um, improve their mental health, to reduce their anxiety, their stress, you know, improve their, improve their mood. But when the exercise in and of itself becomes the anxiety provoking thing, then that's when you need to take a step back and say, okay, I, I've lost really the, the focus and the goal of why I'm, you know, why I should be doing this. So as a follow-up to that, let's see, say someone does, the, takes the right steps, goes to the therapist, gets the help they need. You still want them to continue doing the activity they love. And in, for our purposes, because this is a running podcast, running. Mm -hmm. So um, what's tricky is how can one 
who recognizes that they have a propensity toward overdoing it go back to the activity, the sport they love, without repeating the same pattern? That, that's, um, that's a tough one. It really is because you don't, with, with, oftentimes you hear with, you know, with different types of addictions, you want abstinence. You don't want to be doing it at all. But that's sending the wrong message with, with, with exercise because it's one of the, the top three behaviors that you can do for your health. So you don't want people to all of a sudden become couch potatoes and, and not exercise anymore. So it's the question of what you've alluded to. How do you bring it down to, you know, kind of a healthy, a healthy range and then maintain it? And the, some of the individuals that we, we have studied and have gone from being what we classify as exercise addicted then to, to regular exercisers kind of know that there's kind of this cutoff or this trigger where they've got to take a step back and say, okay, um, I need to take a day off. It's okay. I need to spend time with my family um, and kind of take a look at what the, what the types of triggers are and then try to find other ways that they can deal, for example, with, with their anxiety or maybe their stress. Um, in, in other ways besides just, you know, besides just exercising. So what have you typically seen as some suggestions to do in lieu of exercising to deal with that stress? One that comes to mind for me is um, to suggest to someone be like spending the day, you're cooking, doing something proactive that is fueling your body, but also your mind, trying a new recipe, spending time in the kitchen. Um, would you consider that to be a good activity to do to sort of um, take your mind away from that feeling that you have to exercise? Oh my gosh, yeah, 100%. It's really trying to change or, or almost in a sense replace, you know, the, the exercise or some of your exercise with, with something else. Yeah, cooking, you know, reading, spending time with family and friends, you know, just other things that can be done that will kind of create more of a holistic impact is typically someone who, who's exercise addicted, that is the focus of their life. And that's what they're spending most of their time on. If they're not necessarily, they may not necessarily be about be out exercising, but if they're not, then they're thinking about it. They're planning it. Maybe they're, they're purchasing clothes. Um, their vacations are, are all exercise focused. So it's those types of things where you have to, you want these individuals to broaden out to really become more of a, of a whole person and doing more than just that focus of that all-consuming exercise. Yeah, this is really an interesting discussion because as you're talking about these things, I mean, we're runners and so many of our friends are runners. And when we are in the height of training for, for example, a marathon, there is a period that is pretty intense where in order to successfully train for a race and, and perform to your um, perform your best, you do have to sort of have a singular focus. So I just want to check with you and make sure that, you know, how we feel about it is that if that is temporary, where you are in a situation where you are putting your exercise first, but it's because it's due to a goal that is going to be over at some point, is that different or is that still considered to be a potentially dangerous behavior? No, I wouldn't say it's dangerous behavior at all because I think it's really important to set goals, especially fitness goals. And a great fitness goal is, for example, running a half marathon or a marathon. And you set up your training, you're going to do it strategically. And, and it does become, I wouldn't say all-consuming, but it becomes a big focus of someone's life for, for a couple of months because it's a really important and a big thing to, to train for. But the, the typical person will accomplish that goal and then they're able to take a step back and... Um, 
maybe they, they slow down a little bit on the running or, or maybe they begin to pick another, you know, marathon that they're going to do, um, you know, maybe a couple months down the road, but it, it's not, they take a bit of a break, right? So it's important to have that focus. Then you, then you kind of take a step back, say, Hey, I accomplished it. What, what's the next thing, you know, the next thing that I want to do. I have interviewed people who've done ultra, you know, um, ultra marathons or, or iron, you know, Ironmans. And it's not to state that someone who does these extreme, you know, events are exercise addicted at all. They're, they're very focused and they've got a goal. And then typically when they accomplish that goal, then, you know, they take it, uh, they take some time off. Their body needs to, to heal, you know, from these events. And most people are able to do it. It's those individuals that, that cannot, like the individual who finishes that marathon and, and kept running for the sole fact of still feeling compelled to, you know, to run. So that's really where you see that, that fine line. So I really want to get the point across to, to your audience that just because you're, you're exercising every day doesn't mean that you're, that you're addicted to it, you know? Um, it, it's really the, the thought process that goes behind that. So we've been talking a lot, I mean, in kind of generalities, and this applies, I think, to men and women and, you know, different ages, different backgrounds. Is there anything specific um, you know, we are parents of teenagers, our friends are parents of teenagers and teenage athletes. And, you know, we see a lot of them who are getting very into their sport or very into mm -hmm. athletics. Is there anything specific to teenagers and, and any tips you give parents who might start to see that transition from a kid who's really focused on a sport and focused on staying fit, which is healthy, to sort of this compulsion? Is there anything specific to teenagers? You know, and, and it, it's a good question. We kind of see the high-risk range uh, of, of exercise addiction really more so with, with younger, you know, younger adults. And you get into the, you know, the athlete versus the, versus the exerciser. And typically someone who, who's an athlete, they're kind of their motivation, you know, tends to be a little bit different than somebody who, who, who's an exerciser because there's that competitive aspect and they tend to be training for the, you know, the the competition and sometimes they can be training you know and i've seen with high school athletes three four five six you know seven hours um seven hours a day i know um my boys play play baseball in high school and they would have periodically like seven hour practices on on a saturday are they addicted um to it no but by no means either they were focused on it during during the season and then were able to take some time off or would have would have rest days and on those rest days they were compelled to go to the gym they were okay with just taking, you know, taking that break. So I think especially for, for, um, for young kids and for teenagers where there's so much pressure on them and so much specializing at younger and younger, um, younger and younger ages is to try to keep a healthy, healthy balance and understand, okay, what's, what is my motivation, you know, for doing this and being able to say, okay, I'm tired. I need, I need a break. I need to take a little bit of time off. And that's why we have off seasons. I have, I, when you were talking about your sons and um, baseball, it just, I, I had a flashback to something that happened um, as a cross country parent last fall. I didn't know it was a parent on another team and they were standing next to me and they knew um, that I was a local running coach and they just started talking to me about their son who trained all summer by himself, which is how it works a lot with cross country and those kinds of sports. It's more of an independent sport during the summer training where they're doing their own thing and they're not being monitored closely by a coach necessarily. And this parent didn't know better and was saying how proud um, she was of her son and how much he trained and how he was running, quote, eight to 10 miles a day and how he got his body fat down to a ridiculous percentage and now they're worried. And it just really alarmed me because it, it got me thinking that there is a difference in some 
um, high school sports or youth sports, um, depending on the sport, on the emphasis of how much to do and also, of course, weight. So, for example, with a sport like um, baseball, there's a point at which you're if you do too much, you're going to injure your shoulder. For example, if you go to the batting cages and you're doing too much, there's a point of no return. But sometimes the messaging for endurance sports, whether running or swimming, I feel like sometimes gets confused by the teens and then by their parents as to when to stop. And um, because the practice in and of itself doesn't require any equipment, the teen can just go out and run for however long they feel like, and there just isn't the same structure as some other sports. Have you found as a result that there seems to be more teens connected with certain sports that come into your practice who are more addicted to exercise or show signs of being at risk? You know, that's a great question. And, and you do see it across, you know, all types of activities, but there are some that, that tend, to, um, tend to be a little bit higher. You're, you're really drawing upon, you know, the, the, the running, um, and those distance, more of those distance and individual types of types of events, because it seems to to be um, those activities um, where I don't want to say it's easier to to um, to have an exercise addiction to, but you know if you're doing it by yourself or on this, you know the treadmill by yourself or running by yourself, you don't need a team right with you, and you don't have that team monitoring you because oftentimes with, with team sports or certain types of sports, they're monitoring. Like you come back to baseball where you can only pitch, you know, a, a certain amount and then you need to rest, you know, you rest your arm and you don't want to, you don't want to be, you know, over, overdoing it. But for whatever reason with an activity like running, um, there's always this, this belief, um, almost a fallacy that more is better. And, and that's not, you know, that's not the case. And to try to get your body down, you know, to an extremely low percent body fat. And that comes to a point where it's just, it's not healthy. It's not healthy anymore. Um, and maybe that's where these individuals might want to, you know, maybe go and get their body composition, you know, assessed by, by professionals to see what exactly is their percent body fat. What is a healthy, what is a healthy range? Let's take a look at your diet. Are you eating enough calories for the amount that you're actually exercising and knowing that you can get to a certain a certain weight where it's not healthy anymore and your body begins to you got body begins to break down so that's really you know once again where you know these individuals might want to get a whole team together like exercise physiologists and nutritionalists and get these types of really important you know performance tests done and for them to understand that you can get to get to a point and you can train too much and overtrain and it's going to have detrimental effects on your performance absolutely and on the other end of the spectrum we have we also noticed that and this is something i've noticed since going to gyms you know, for years, is that there seems to also be a lot of addictive behavior among um, women postmenopausal. I don't know if it's because that also coincides with the age where your kids are grown and you have more time to spend at the gym, but I can't help but also think it may also have to do with the fact that your body is going through some changes, obviously, and perhaps you have already uh, um, you're inclined to exercise more as we talked about before to compensate for that. But what advice do you have for women and men who are struggling in their 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond who are, are trying to maintain that healthy lifestyle but are feeling a little bit like they have to do more to be able to maintain the same level of fitness? And Lisa, I know you can speak to this a little bit as well. So if there's anything you want to 
add well, to my- I think, that, I think especially for um, postmenopausal women whose bodies are starting to change and then they're thinking like, oh gosh, now, yeah, I have to do more to stay, keep up to where I was when I was younger, that that may, you know, that may contribute. And it's always interesting. I think, I don't know, in, in our heads, a lot of times we think of um, addictions, at least in terms of exercise addiction or um, eating disorders as something that strikes younger people who maybe don't know any better or they're in that part of their lives. And then as we get older, we get smarter and we can look at it more balanced and we're more, you know, we're, we're less apt to, to do that. But we do see a lot of, you know, older older individuals that are having the same, those same issues. Yeah, it, you know, it's, and unfortunately there's so much what I like to say, like noise, um, you know, monster of misinformation out there, the pseudoscience that, that people like look to and say, okay, well, this is what I, I need to do to, to be healthy. Maybe I've got a void in my life and I need, need to do more. Better realize that, you know, as we get older, it's gonna happen. Our body shifts, things shift and change, um, and that and that's and that's okay. And that's why individuals need to, to look to to experts like you guys um, to be able. And I love what you do to be able to to develop, you know, and monitor and help people with really healthy, you know, running programs to say this is what you need to do. This is realistic. Um, a lot of people come into to exercise thinking that okay, um, you know, I'm postmenopausal. I put on a little bit of weight. So I need to exercise, you know, I need to exercise more and then everything is going to return to normal. Well, no, things just aren't going to be like it was when you were 30 or when you were 40. And people need to realize that you would need to exercise an extreme amount to, to burn, you know, um, extra, extra calories. Um, it really comes down to, you know, your, your diet, you know, your diet as well and what you're, what you're, um, and what you're eating. So that's where, People need to really look to the science and look to the experts. Maybe get get a coach, get an, an expert who knows what they're doing, and be careful about the sites that you're, you're searching on the internet because there is so much misinformation out there that you try to make things that are grounded in science. I know there are, you know, for example, universities, um, you know, kinesiology, exercise science departments that will allow, you know, individuals from the public to come in and get, you know, the different types of testing done from body composition to VO2 max and help set up, you know, healthy, um, you know, and realistic exercise, exercise programs. Because at the end of the day, you want to remain healthy. You don't want to get an overuse, an overuse injury. And, you know, things need to be, things need to be realistic. And if you're looking at images, you know, on, on, on social media, 99% of those images are not, are not realistic. So true. I think we've said this a lot. Social media is can be so positive, but it can be so negative. And I think one thing that anyone can do is if they're finding, especially if one ha is inclined to have an addictive personality, you can unfollow people. So if there's something that is causing you to feel pressure and that influencer or that person that you're following that everyone's saying, you're amazing, you're amazing, but they're not making you feel good. You just don't follow them. Like yeah. they're not an expert and there's plenty of experts out there. They're just people who happen to enjoy posting things about their progress, which is great. But if it's not making you feel good, then you don't have to use that as a guide. You know what? Exactly. Go to, you know, go to experts like, you know, like you guys in what you, you know, in what you, what you do. We do know that the more time you spend on social media, the worse move. You're, you're in. So try to limit, um, you know, how much you're on it and, and go to reputable sites that are science-based or, or people who have like, you know, you guys are, are certified. You've got, you know, the coaching, the coaching expertise to do this. You just didn't set this up and, and 
and, and start to do it without having the knowledge behind it. And that's what individuals really need to, to do. Unfortunately, people have to do their homework. So if someone is feeling, especially during these times, that they may need a little bit of support, um, when seeking a therapist um, for this particular issue, what, what criteria should they be looking for? Are there specific certifications that someone should have as a therapist to deal with this issue? Yeah, I would say, you know, you want to go to, um, you know, a healthcare individual who has the right, you know, certifications. Maybe it's a clinical psychologist, maybe it's, a, you know, a clinical mental health counselor or a counseling psychologist. Um, and to, to find that, that individual that, that would be able to help and have that type of, have that type of expertise um, that goes along with it. So, for example, with what I do, I have, I have a PhD, so my, my background is research. So I don't do the, the clinical aspect where I, where I would actually counsel somebody coming, coming in, but I certainly what I can do is refer out um, to that because I understand what it is, but I know what my limits are as well and that I don't have that, that type of um, certification or, the, or those skills to actually counsel, counsel somebody. So it's really knowing you know, what your, what your skill set is, what your limitations are, and then trying to help individuals and point them in the right direction. So with your research, we, what are you working on now? And what do you see as a, a problem in the future that needs to be um, addressed? And is that something that you are working on? You know, I, I think first and foremost, you know, to get the, the point across to your listeners that, that exercise is a phenomenal thing that you can do for your health. And if you're doing it regularly, that is great. Um, but, and, and people who are addicted to exercise know, they're aware that it is a problem. People have told them, um, they, they understand, but it's that, that they can't, that they can't actually stop it. So right now, I mean, if you go back even 15 years ago, there wasn't a lot of research that took a look specifically at can you exercise excessively? Can you do it too much? Now, within about the, the last decade, there's really been an explosion of research. We're understanding it a lot more. There's some really great ways um, that, we can, that we can measure it. And there's now actually, you know, scientific journals devoted specifically to, to behavioral addictions. So one of the, you know, one of the things that, that I see that is very exciting is an increased, you know, an increased awareness that, that, this is, that this is an issue, that this is a real problem. And it's just taking kind of the medical community a little bit longer to get caught up because we need the, we need the research behind it. So I'm hoping that, you know, in, in the next few years, um, it'll potentially be recognized as, as, as a legitimate disorder that, that deserves the, the attention that it should have and that these people are really suffering and they need help. Great. All right. Well, Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. This, this is a fascinating topic and it's certainly relevant, especially during these times. And we greatly appreciate your wisdom and expertise. How can people find you? Um, well, if you honestly, if you, um, you know, just type in my web, if you go to, uh, type in my name on the, you know, on the web, it, it will pull up. You can go to Jacksonville university and find my, my email address there. And if people want to reach out to me, um, please do, and I'm happy to, to answer any questions or send information that I have. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryant. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others. And please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.